Wish you weren't hearing an ad? Want to get the next episode even sooner? After the show, head to watchnebula.com slash modulus. You'll get access to our original podcasts ad-free and sooner than everyone else, plus exclusive originals and experimental shows from your favorite educational content creators. Best of all, you're helping support us to make even more amazing content. Check out watchnebula.com slash modulus. This is Modulus, the podcast hosted by me, Brian McManus. And me, Stephanie Salmon. In each episode, we take turns sharing the stories of the people behind extraordinary science, engineering, and technological advancement. To inspire not only ourselves, but generations of inventors and history makers. We need something to trigger the system. It's the kind of thing where people have talked about it for, for centuries. And there wasn't a good explanation, which was what intrigued us. Today, we're handing the mic over to our producer, Erica Corder, for a foray into the desert, where a haunting sound has proven a mystery for centuries. That is, until today's guest began taking groups of students into the desert to finally figure it out. Hear more about her research process and her findings in today's episode of Modulus. Imagine it's the 13th century. You're making a voyage through a hot desert, say the Gobi Desert in Central Asia. With the sun beating down on you in this endless, dry landscape, you're desperate for a reprieve from the heat. Then you feel a slight breeze, and suddenly the dunes around you begin to vibrate with a low, eerie roar. Given that it's the 13th century, you probably jump right to thinking it's demons or buried spirits haunting you. And in fact, explorer Marco Polo himself wrote that this rumbling was the product of evil desert spirits which, quote, at times fill the air with the sounds of all kinds of musical instruments, and also of drums and the clash of arms. And yet, hundreds of years later, there still wasn't a clear consensus on exactly what this sound was. But that began to change back in the early aughts when some Caltech students brought mechanical engineering professor Melanie Hunt a jar of sand some students had gone out to the desert and they brought me back a jar of sand from the desert. And the weird thing about the sand in a jar from this particular desert is that when you shake it, it makes this what what we call the burping sound. And we were just curious. It was a summertime and we decided that we'd go out and kind of explore ourselves. There are over 30 known sites around the world where this phenomenon of the booming sand occurs, including sites in China, Qatar, and the U.S. Luckily for Melanie and her students, a few of these sites were located within a couple hours of Caltech, like the Eureka Dunes in Death Valley National Park and the Kelso Dunes in Mojave National Preserve. But it was also California's propensity for earthquakes that actually made this research project possible. So when you started researching this, how did you even begin to design the study? So at Caltech, a good number of my colleagues are very interested in earthquakes, and they've got a lot of instrumentation. So we got one of my colleagues to come out with us one time who has a lot of equipment, 
And he came out, he'd never been out there before and really was just fascinated. And so then after that, he was extremely helpful and allowed us to borrow a lot of his equipment. And he, he trained one of my graduate students. It's really equipment that is used in a lot of earthquake studies and trying to understand earthquake propagation. And so it's really taking a microphone and that's what we call a geophone. You just bury it in the sand and then we take a, a big plate and a mallet put the plate on the on the dune and then whack the plate and then with the microphones we could we could measure how fast that signal traveled through the dune itself and that gave us some of the first measurements on what we call the wave speeds or, or this propagation he also had what's called ground penetrating radar which is just used to image below the ground it's similar to kind of an x-ray system um, but you can then look at where the material changes properties gives you, again, an idea about the structure of the dune. And that was what really allowed us to kind of measure these depths of these dry layers is through these measurements of using this ground penetrating radar system. Once they'd set the measurement equipment up on a dune, the experiment was technically ready to begin. There's only a slight problem. Sometimes the booming sound has to be triggered. In the absence of wind to help the booming naturally occur, Melanie and her students developed a method to trigger it a technique Melanie called science by the seat of our pants. So when you go out, um, you need to go to a, a desert. There's several in California that have very large sand dunes. These sand dunes are hundreds of feet high. And you go out and usually nothing's happened when you go. And so what you do is you climb up these, you know, they're, again, they're hundreds of feet high and you have to do it in the summer when it's hot. We climb up to the top and what we would just do is sit down on the, the slope of the dune that was pretty steep and just scoot down. And as you're scooting down on your backside, just try to move some sand with your hands, um, kind of triggering this avalanche of sand. I mean, it really is quite incredible. It, it, it kind of starts out low as kind of this low rumble and then the sound can really build and it really can be quite loud and you can really feel it. And so it sounds like a, a low flying propeller plane. It's really this low rumble. And there have been a couple times when we've gone out when there's been a good wind and the conditions are right, where just there'll be a naturally occurring avalanche on the dune. You know, then it, it sounds the same as when we started, but it is quite remarkable that it, it, it does just happen. And so it's the kind of thing where people have talked about it for, for centuries and there wasn't a good explanation, which was what intrigued us is this idea of, you know, can we explain something that people haven't understood or haven't understood well. At the time when they started doing this research, there was a standing notion that the sound had to do with the rubbing of the grains of sand against each other. But to Melanie, whose research focus is on granular flows, that theory didn't hold up. When you go out there, <laughs> you know, it doesn't seem like a great thing at all because you can actually feel it with your hands. You can kind of feel it with your body. And, it, you know, really it's this vibration that you feel. And so it never seemed to us that something associated with the size of a sand grain, that a sand grain is, you know, a fraction of a millimeter, that something of that scale could contribute to this kind of sound that we hear and we feel. It's important to note here that part of figuring out the puzzle of the booming sands requires differentiating the booming from other unique acoustic properties of sand. There's a more commonly found sand phenomenon referred to as squeaking sand that produces a shorter, higher pitch noise. It's found often all around the world along beaches, lakeshores, and riverbeds. When sheared or compressed, 
it produces a wide range of potential frequencies, with recorded occurrences anywhere from 250 Hz to 1000 Hz or greater. This is contrasted by the booming sands, which can be heard up to 10 kilometers away and have a more narrow range of frequencies, typically around 80 to 100 Hz. The booming event frequency spectra tends to have a clear peak. And this is interesting because in a natural environment, it's rare to find clear and clean peaks in amplitude at a particular frequency. Most things in nature just don't vibrate at one frequency. For example, when you hear waves crashing onto rocks, or wind blowing through grass, or a waterfall flowing over a cliffside and into a stream, you're hearing a mix of frequencies with no clear peaks, or what we might describe simply as noise. This mix of frequencies is generated by sources with varying properties. But the booming sands have a clear peak in their frequency spectra. This peak sounds like a pure tone, or a musical note, typically a G, E, or F. This kind of pure tone is something you'd expect to hear from well-designed musical instruments or tuning forks or propeller planes, which the booming sound is often compared to. Then there's the burping sand, which was brought to Melanie in a jar by her students. Melanie's team took measurements of the burping sand spectra and found that it features a broader range of frequencies, from 70 to 250 hertz with no clear peak. They obtained this sand in the desert both at booming dune sites and at sites where they could not generate the booming sound. Burping in the jar, I think, probably is somewhat associated with the grain sizes and the distribution of grains in that jar. But again, the sound in the jar is distinctly different than what we hear out in the dunes. And so it was really that kind of idea. It just didn't make any sense. And it didn't make any sense that it was a buried spirit or buried demon or anything else that historically um, people had thought about even reports back to Marco Polo and other desert explorers that say they'd heard these deep groaning kind of sounds and attributed it with some spirit. But again, that, you know, as scientists, we didn't really believe that explanation. And we didn't believe the, the particle size explanation either. It was just really this rubbing of grains and how fast the grains rubbed against each other was really the other theory that just never made any sense. Because then you should be able to do it on the small dunes. You should be able to do it everywhere. It just never really made any sense. So it was really this idea that the dune itself had to come into this theory. Therein lies the key to Melanie's theory. While the squeaking and burping sands may have to do with grain properties, there has to be something to the fact that only certain dunes in particular produce the distinctive and haunting booming sound. Melanie's team observed no link between the booming frequency and particle size, and hypothesized that the speed of the sand was not primarily responsible for the booming frequency. So what causes it? You know, if you think about a violin, right, a smaller instrument, it has a higher frequency. If you think about a big bass, it has a lower frequency. And so what we thought is, you know, this kind of 80 hertz range, just in terms of properties that we had, we needed something about the size of a cello to be vibrating to get this frequency. And so this meter and a half is on the same size as a cello, um, same kind of length scale. So it's really that kind of idea that, that this vibration happens in this layer that's similar size to a cello and we get a frequency that is similar size to a cello and that the wave speeds are somewhat similar as well. And that was our, kind of our whole idea is that we needed to be able to see if there was some kind of internal structure to the dune that would 
vibrate to get this frequency. Of course, we, we had the theory first and then really tried to make measurements that would support what we thought was happening. So before you began working on this, actually out in the field, was anyone else doing that? I mean, was was there any other experimental work done, you know, on this question of the booming sand dunes? There, there wasn't. And so you know, we'd leave Caltech usually like at four in the morning and then drive out, getting there, you know, around 7 a.m. or so. There's always students that were willing to go, interested to go. And so we'd take a van of about eight people typically, and we'd bring a bunch of equipment and a bunch of water, and we'd get there first thing in the morning. And then we'd work for, you know, really four hours was probably as much because by you know, 11, 12 o'clock, it was really getting hot. And by that point, we'd probably done whatever measurements we needed to do. And we'd pack back up and stop for lunch along the way and be back on campus by, you know, 3 p.m. or so. And so, you know, it was kind of this 12-hour journey that we could easily make, you know, again, if we, if we couldn't have done it like that, we probably wouldn't have ever, ever really been able to look at the problem. So after nearly 10 years of these desert experiments, Melanie and her research team seem to finally solve the mystery. For these booming sand dunes to exist requires a very specific set of circumstances. To, to get the sound, you, you need it so it's really dry. <laughs> the desert has to be dry. And you have to have a very large sand dune is what we found. That Many of these places you go, there's these very large sand dunes, but there's smaller dunes around, which is the same sand, but you couldn't make the sound of the smaller dunes. You know, so this was kind of dispelling the idea that it had to do with the sand because there's lots of small dunes and you could not make the sound on the small dunes. You had to make the sound on this large dune and had to be really on this, the face of the dune that was, was the steepest, which is usually about a 30 degree angle. And so our explanation is really that you need a large dune. It needs to be very, very dry. And then you need to have some kind of input of energy into the system, which is the, the sand avalanching down. You need something to trigger the, the system. And so what we really think happens or what happens naturally is that over the course of the, the summer, the dune really dries out. And that when you've got just dry sand grains, that if you push on one, kind of sending a pulse into the to the sand, they just knock against each other. And that without any liquid around it, the, the process by which that pulse is transmitted through the bed is actually pretty slow. If I add a little bit of water, it happens much quicker, that you get those contacts between the grains because you've got the water in between those grains and, and then the pulse travels much faster. So the whole idea is that in this dry sand, sound travels slowly. And so it can really kind of trap some of that sound in this very dry layer. And so what we do is we slide on the top, triggering a whole bunch of frequencies on the top. And that, that sound is propagating through the dune. But there's one kind of preferred frequency that travels best because it can come down and reflect and reflect again and reflect again. And then it acts as what we call a waveguide. The thickness of the dry layer makes a difference and the speed at which the sound travels through makes a difference. And based on the thickness and the speed, you get kind of a preferred frequency that can just propagate down this wave in a way that the other frequencies don't, they become dissipated. You're putting energy in over a range of frequencies, but it's kind of one preferred frequency. 
And so rather than a whole bunch of frequencies, what's interesting is that you get this pure tone um, that's very similar to a cello. The interesting thing is that of the 30 plus sites worldwide where this booming sand exists, despite geographical differences or differences in the sand itself, the the actual way the booming sand operates is the same, right? So, so it doesn't so much depend on the grain. Probably all these dunes around the world get wet during the course of the year. They start drying out. The process of drying is probably similar everywhere around the world. And so you get a layer that's maybe a meter and a half or so that's this dry sand. And that's probably pretty typical at different locations. And then you have to have it long enough. So you have to have a dune long enough so that you get these reverberations of the waves all the way down. So if it's short, you just can't, you know, the structure isn't right. You need it long enough so you get these reverberations and that, you know, different places around the world, the tones may be slightly different based upon different times of the year, but it's the similar kind of drying process that happens, probably a similar kind of depth of this dry layer. And probably the dune is structured probably somewhat similarly internally. Okay, so all things considered, say I were to go and get sand from like a random beach, uh-huh. would it be able to make this booming sound if if I could somehow set it up in the right configuration? Yeah, it probably would. You, you, again, you'd have to have it dried out. You'd have to have a long channel. This is why people always say, why don't you do it in the, in the lab? I think, well, we never had enough sand. Uh, the thing about the, the desert sand that's different than the beach sand is that it actually, because it travels in the wind, it's pretty round, That it's actually pretty well sorted. That stuff that's real small gets blown off the dune. Stuff that's real big ends up at the base and stays at the base. Um, and so, whereas beach sand t- tends to be pretty angular, actually. Um, and that's where, you know, if people are going to use do something with construction, they'd rather have the beach sand than the, the round desert sand. Um, that it just doesn't work as well as beach sand in terms of building things. That the desert sand is too round and too well sorted, but it works well to, to flow. So I should say the other piece is that you've got this real dry layer. And then what we found is that below this real dry layer, it probably retains some moisture at some depth and it gets a lot harder. And so you need this dry layer kind of above a hard layer that allows the wave to be reflected off of that interface between the dry and the hard. And so you may have the right sand and things, but you need to have a structure where the wave can reflect off of that surface. Yeah, kind of sandwiched in there, right? It has to be sandwiched in. And so really, in terms of what we think is wave speed or how far fast sound propagates, it propagates really well in the real hard packed sand. It doesn't propagate well in the, the dry dune sand. And it propagates better actually in air. So you've got this damaging of, of this layer where sound doesn't travel very well beneath air and above this hard pack. And so it's kind of this trapping through this layer that sound just doesn't propagate through that causes it. So you need kind of the sandwiching effect as well. With that, the mystery was solved. Those ancient desert spirits feared by travelers and explorers centuries ago seem to simply be sound waves propagating through a loose layer in a sand-sky sandwich. So at this point, I mean, you've essentially answered the question of why these sand dunes do what they do, right? We think so. Yeah, we think so. (laughs) 
there's a group in, in France that always disagreed with us and what, what, what our rationale, but I think for the most part, people have accepted our explanation. And, and there's probably always things you could do more, but at, at this point, we, we were kind of satisfied with what we had done. So in the end, what do you do with research like this? Melanie and her team, content with their findings, have mainly continued their other research projects. Melanie says there's some value add for those studying sand dunes, like those that encroach on uninhabited areas in places like China. Their work in studying the internal structure and the imaging of the very large sand dune may be relevant to understanding which encroaching dunes move and which don't. But beyond that, this project was just primarily research for the sake of research for solving a mystery humankind has wondered about for generations. It was hard to say that there was a real application for it. So it was hard to get funding to do this work, except we took out, again, I have to say, we took out a lot of students over those years. And you know, so there's this educational piece. And it was interesting to do. We had a lot of fun doing it, but it's hard to get support to do this kind of work. Today at Caltech, between teaching and researching, Melanie's focus is mainly on understanding and explaining complicated multi-phase flows, an interest with a more wide-ranging applicability. I mean, I started college kind of around the time that, the, you know, back in the 1970s, uh, when the country was really worried about energy and energy conservation. And so just in my thesis work, uh, really one of the applications was about insulation and insulating materials and how do you really design and think about insulating materials. And so there it was... The insulation, um, you know, it's, it's a structured material, but air plays a role and the air is important. And so it was really transport and insulating materials is the kind of thing I looked at, which again had relevance to energy and energy applications at the time. And it, again, it was just for me, I guess I just found it interesting and um, I kind of stuck with it ever since. I also like to do more experimental kinds of things. And so this work has always been one where I could conceive of experiments that I could do in the lab and make some results and make some headway. You know, I've always tended to want to do research in areas where there aren't a lot of other people working. It's been always for me something that I can figure out how to make an experiment on, you know, think figure about how how can I make a measurement associated with that process has always been part of it too. Because I, I just like doing being able to do the experimental part of science, not just thinking about the theoretical part, but being able to measure something and see if it's right or not. Despite the complicated nature of her research focus, Melanie is guided by a fairly simple research philosophy. When facing any large research question, even if it's one no one else has ever experimented on before and humans have wondered about it for centuries, she just starts small. I always think about starting with what, what is the simplest thing I can do? You know, let's start with the simplest experiment and then make it more complicated as we go along. And sometimes too simple, you maybe not don't get so far, but, but doing something at a small scale and seeing if you can get it to work at all and then making it more complicated as you go along uh, is is at least the way I always think about it. Let's start with a simple design, and then if we need better instrumentation or if we need to refine it, we can do it. But let's at least try something and see if it works and see where it takes us. Thanks for listening to this episode of Modulus. Let us know what you think of this podcast by tweeting at us at, at ModulusMag, or if you're feeling generous, give us a rate and review. This podcast was brought to you by the team behind YouTube's Real Engineering and Real Science. 
This episode was hosted, produced, and written by Erica Corder and edited by Graham Harther. Our music composer is Lee Rosevere. And thank you to our guest, Melanie Hunt, for uncovering the mystery of the booming sand dunes for us. If you'd like to listen to more of this podcast or others like it, go to watchnebula.com. Until next time, and thanks for listening.